0: Father, we need you this morning. Speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. Would you change us to look more like your son today? Thanks that you travel with us in the midst of our sorrow. You bring us joy in the midst of looking at your face and who you are. I pray that we would experience that joy this morning as we look at the text, that you would awaken us to what you want to teach us this morning. Transform us to look more like you today. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, good to see you guys. I'm John, I'm one of the pastors here. Thankful you guys decided to join us this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can open up to John 16, if it's not already there, or on your phone to John 16. That's where we're going to be this morning as we round out the last chapter, uh, or the last verses of John 16 and... This is important for us to realize, and we've been walking through the Gospel of John for uh, almost a year, over a year now, and we'll continue in the book of John after we come back from our Advent series, and then we're going to do a couple of standalone series the last Sunday of the year and the first Sunday of the year, and then we'll jump back into John 17, that second Sunday of 2022. John will carry us all the way through Easter, and so we will stay in the Gospel of John there, and then after that, we will jump into the book of Colossians. So that kind of sets some direction for us. Uh, for the next really half a year for where we're going to go in the Bible on Sundays. Um, and John, the Gospel of John, as you guys know, really breaks down well. It's important for us anytime we read the Scriptures to begin to understand what is the Bible trying to say to us, as my seminary professor says. What is it trying to say? Not just what does it read like, but what is it trying to do to you? And John is very clear in the gospel. At the very end of the book, we've looked at it several times. In John chapter 20, he lets us behind the curtain of why he's writing what he's writing so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ. And then in believing in him, you would have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of the gospel of John. That is what John is gritting every single story he's writing through, that you would believe more in Jesus. And in believing more in Jesus, you would actually have life. The gospel actually breaks down really nicely in kind of two different chunks. We've talked about this. Um, Chapters 1 through 12 is the first half of the book. And then chapters 13 through 21, the rest is the second half. And in the first half of the gospel of John, Jesus is going around and he's doing things. He's healing people and he's doing miracles. And he's not only doing things, but he's saying things. He's making claims about who he is and how he's connected to God the Father. And that's over about a three-year span of his ministry in those first 12 chapters. And the whole point of him doing things and saying things is so that he's forcing the people that are listening to say, What do you believe about me? What do you believe about Jesus by what he says and what he does in those chapters? And then it takes a hard turn, starting in chapter 13 in the second half of the book. Everything slows down. And it's not three years of ministry, but it's about six days with his closest followers As he tells them, this is what it means to believe in me in the midst of trouble, in the midst of trial. I'm going to give you the spirit to stay connected with me. This is what it means to follow me as he heads towards the cross. That's some of the context of what we are jumping into this morning in John chapter 16. And the human condition, it sometimes reminds me of solar panels, So I have solar panels on my house. Those of you that have been to my house, I don't like the way it looks. It looks like you drive up to my house and it's like a spaceship. I'm not a fan. They look way bigger than I thought they were going to look. I don't really like the aesthetic of it. But I do like what it provides for us as far as what it does to our electricity bill and how it helps the environment and things like that. And The human condition is kind of like solar panels in the sense of like, I don't know if you know this, but solar panels make a lot of sense in Arizona because there's a lot of sunshine. But at night, solar panels don't work at all, right? Big shocker. Um, But they don't produce any energy in the midst of the night because there's no sun out. They have to have the perfect conditions in order to function correctly. And a lot of us, our own hearts in the human condition is we have to have those perfect conditions to function correctly, don't we? I mean, can you, you guys know this, like when you have a good day, everything seems to go your way. You hit every light, there's no traffic, everything starts well, you feel good about yourself, and you can easily overlook offenses, you're not really mad at people, you can kind of brush it off. It's easy when things and circumstances are going well for you, but what happens when it's the opposite of that? When things aren't going well for you, and you just feel like you're taking loss after loss after loss we don't function very well as humans. Just like solar panels, we need the right conditions to be able to function well. Tim Keller uses this illustration where he talks about that humans are built kind of like little bombs. And what he means by that is a bomb is, is very irritable. It doesn't take much for a bomb to explode. Inside a bomb, it's built with unstable compound. All you have to do is light it and then But if you leave a bomb alone, even if it's a live bomb and you don't lie to the fuse, even if you dig it in the ground and you leave it there, it won't go off. If the conditions are right, nothing will happen. It will look good on the outside. But if somebody comes and digs up that bomb and just does a little thing, it explodes. And he says our human hearts are often like that. We are built with an unstable condition in our own hearts, what the Bible tells us. And there's only one way to diffuse this bomb, and it's the gospel. That is the only way we can be rescued from this eruption happening in our lives, in our souls, in our hearts, in our minds. And this gospel, the good news, it translates literally in the New Testament, good news. It's a proclamation of what happened. They didn't have Twitter back in the biblical days. They didn't have phones. They didn't have mail. And so what would happen is if there was a war and one army would win the war, they would send a runner back and they would send a runner back to the town and he would proclaim that we won. We won. He is proclaiming the truth of the good news. And that is what the biblical authors mean when they say the gospel, that because of what Jesus has done His life, death, and resurrection, there is good news to announce for our souls that are often like bombs. And really, Jesus is the only one. He's really the only one, like a really good um, person that diffuses a bomb. He's gentle, and he's careful, and he can diffuse your heart like no one else can. The gospel of the Bible should diffuse us, and it should bring us joy, good news and joy. And what we're going to find in our text this morning are really three indicators of gospel joy. Three indicators of gospel joy are, one, if you're taking notes, it's inevitable. Gospel joy is inevitable if you follow Jesus. Number two, it's overshadowing, and number three, it's transcendent. It's inevitable, it's overshadowing, and it's transcendent. And again, the context is Jesus is in his last days. He's speaking to his closest friends and followers. And man, they're about to go through it. I mean, put yourself in their shoes again. Jesus just raises Lazarus from the dead, right? In John chapter 11, they're thinking, okay, and Jesus says, okay, my time is here. It's about to go down. So all of them are thinking, okay, Jesus is gonna come in. And he's going to wreck shop, and he's going to overthrow the Roman government, and we're going to be sitting pretty. And so they start jockeying for position of like, who's going to be at the right hand of Jesus? They're thinking, this is going to be all good. And Jesus shows them, starting in John chapter 13, actually what love looks like and what it actually is going to look like. Have you ever been there in your relationship with God, where you feel like God is saying something or doing something, and you're like, okay, it's going to be like this and this and this, and it's going to be good. And then it doesn't happen that way. (laughs) And this is what's happening for the disciples. They're confused. And Jesus, in these last couple of chapters, what he is doing is he's trying to cast some vision for hope. He's trying to help them say, hang on. I have a plan. It's going to be really bad before it gets really good, and you're not going to understand it, but stay connected to me. Abide in me. I'm going to send you the advocate, the helper, the spirit to walk you through this stuff. Don't give up. Because for them, in just a couple of days, their leader is going to be arrested, tried, and publicly executed. And they're going to feel like we have no hope. We bet on the wrong person. And Jesus is saying, you did not Trust me in the process. That's what he's saying. Let's look at the text. We're going to read John chapter 16. Let me read, um, starting in verse 16, I'm going to read the entire text through the end of the chapter, and then we will go back and we will kind of look at the implications of where we find this gospel of joy that Jesus is trying to bring us. John chapter 16, starting in verse 16, it says this. This is Jesus speaking to his followers. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, and a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean when he says a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Verse 19, And Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, In a little while I will not see, you will not see me, but again, in a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish... For joy that that human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but you will see, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take that joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. And truly, truly I say to you, whatever you ask in my Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you haven't asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour has come when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about your Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world to go to the Father." Verse 29, his disciples said, ah, now we know you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you've come from God. Jesus answered them, oh, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me and I have said these things to you. That in me you may have peace. The world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And when we talk about this gospel joy, this word joy, just for definition's sake, from the original Greek, the, the New Testament was written, and it carries with it this idea, this joy of cheerfulness, of calmful delight, it says, or gladness. That's when we're talking about joy, that is the definition of the word. Three indicators of this gospel joy we're going to see in the text. One, again, it's inevitable. Two, it's overshadowing. And three, it's transcendent. Let's look at the first one. It's inevitable. Verse 16 in the text. In a little while, Jesus says, you will see me no longer. And again, in a little while, you will see me again. I don't know how many of you have watched on YouTube the show Hot Ones. Anybody seen that show? It's a uh, really creative way of interviewing a celebrity. Basically, Sean Evans, who's the host of the show, he sits down at a table, and he sits across from some type of celebrity, and across from him and the celebrity, there are 10 hot wings laid out in order, both for him and for his guest. Now... These 10 wings, they move up in heat index as the interview goes on. They get hotter and hotter and more unbearable. And he's asking these questions of these celebrities in the midst of them taking bites and eating these hot wings together. It's really, really kind of creative and interesting the way they do it because the celebrities just lose their mind. They can't answer questions. But they start with something very mild. It's kind of like this mild buffalo wing sauce. It's kind of normal. And then they move up in heat. And what happens when they get to number 8 on The wings, the bomb, right? Somebody said it, right? Because that's the sauce every time. Number eight, it's this sauce called the bomb. And every single time a celebrity bites into that wing, they make this face like they just swallowed gasoline (laughs) and their eyes start watering and they cannot control themselves. Their body reacts to this sauce that is just horrible to eat and put into your body. Every time they eat that wing, it is inevitable that their body will react. It's inevitable. And what Jesus is saying to us in this verse, in verse 16, what he's telling his followers and what he is telling us, notice he says, it's not if you will see me again. What does he say? You will see me again, when you will see me again. It is inevitable that you will be face-to-face one day with Jesus, whether he's talking about him coming back three days later to his disciples or he's talking to us when he finally comes back and he returns and makes everything right. It is inevitable. And if you are a Christian, if you walk with Jesus in this room, joy is inevitable because it is attached to seeing Jesus. If you're a Christian, joy has to come in your life eventually. To know him is to have joy. Joy is one of the main attributes of the God we follow in the Bible. It is in the fruit of the Spirit. It's a natural byproduct of being connected and abiding in the vine. Joy will come in your life. So if you have God in your life, you will have joy. If you've received the gospel, the good news, which is essentially a message of joy, you will be growing in joy. And people will recognize it around you. Are you growing in joy? When you take hold of this gospel message, joy begins to root in your heart. begins to take up space in your mind, in your life. I love how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 1611 says this, you make known to me the path of life. There's lots of different paths that people are offering. We've been talking about the world offers these different paths that they say lead to life. Choose this path, choose this path. This path is easy, it's wide, it leads a certain way, it leads to life, and all of those paths don't lead to life, but knowing God, the path that leads to life. The psalmist says, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. As you take that narrow path and as you follow Jesus, you will experience joy that only he provides. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Christian, if you lack joy in your life right now, don't ask for more joy. Don't say, God, I don't, I don't, I don't have joy. Would you just give me more joy? You have the joy. You have access to the joy because you have Jesus. You have the Spirit in your life. Instead of asking for more joy, I would encourage you to ask where, Ask the Spirit, where are you stifling the joy that is already accessible to you? Because like this verse says in Psalm sixteen eleven. the joy is found in the path of life and finding Jesus. A lot of us, and ask yourself this question, like where do you get joy from? When you feel like you're in a good place, where does that come from? Because a lot of us will take another path other than Jesus to get our joy. Are you receiving joy from what you have, from your possessions? If you say, okay, if I just get this thing for Christmas, if I just get this piece of uh, machinery or this car or this house, then I'll have joy, then I'll feel good about my circumstances in my life. Do you get your joy from your possessions? Are you receiving joy from your circumstances? If things are going well for you, you feel like you have joy. Are you receiving joy from your accomplishments? If I get this promotion, if I can get this job, if I can marry this person, if we can have this child, then I'll be complete. Then I will have joy. And all those things can scratch at the idea of joy. But if you don't have real joy right now, could it be because you're looking for joy outside of Jesus? And that's the only place it actually can really be found is in your relationship with Jesus. And Jesus is telling his followers and he's telling us that there will be times of sorrow, but inevitably if you follow him, you'll have joy. That's the first indicator that gospel joy is shown to us in the text, that it is inevitable. The second is it is overshadowing. Look at verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now again, you have to take in the context of what the Bible is telling us. At the time, uh, women did not have drugs. They did not have epidurals at the time of Jesus. So I imagine he is speaking that giving birth is a very painful experience. Some of you women who have given birth naturally know that in the room. None of the men do. But clearly, Jesus is speaking to something that's very, very painful. And he uses this metaphor, I think, in a beautiful way. And again, look at verse 21 again, talking about this woman. When she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. Notice that he doesn't say she doesn't have any pain anymore. He uses this language, I think, very intentionally. She no longer remembers. That pain doesn't go away. It just gets overshadowed by something better, something deeper, something richer. And when we think about God in the midst of how the Bible talks about how he forgets our sins... I love how Hebrews 8, 12 says it. He says, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. What does it mean that God forgets or doesn't remember our sins? Do you think he's up there going like, Man, what did, I know he sinned yesterday. I can't remember what it was. I mean, there's a lot of sins I'm trying to keep track of. And he's had a lot, and everybody else has had a lot. I just don't remember it. Like, that's not what the Bible means. Like, we have Uncle Tommy with us this week. As some of you guys have met Uncle Tommy. he's, he's My wife's uncle has Down syndrome. Everybody, wave to Uncle Tommy. He's over there. Wave, Tommy. Say hi to everybody. <laughs> he's shy. He doesn't want to. Yeah, there he is. Okay. <laughs> uncle Tommy has Down syndrome. He's, he's 57. And, um, and he's, man, he's a delight to be with. We love Tom. And uh, we see Jesus when we get to interact with him in a real and tangible way. He slows us down to just enjoy life. But! In his old age he has been very forgetful even in the last years he has kind of had some early dementia in his life and so i was sitting with tom yesterday and we're hanging out and talking and 10 minutes will go by and i will tell him something and then 10 minutes go by and he'll ask me the exact same question because he literally cannot remember what i told him 10 minutes ago his brain is not working that way when god talks about forgetting your sins no more that is not what he is talking about That's not what the Bible means. It means that because of Christ, your sin has overshadowed your sins because of the blood of Christ. It's not like he doesn't forget. It overshadows him because what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection on the cross, that's how he forgets. And this is what... Jesus is using in this example of this woman that in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of the labor, it's not that she doesn't still hurt, but it's overshadowed by this baby as it gets put into her arms and she looks and she gazes into its eyes and she feels something different than pain. And when we're going through sorrow and we're going through hardship, the Bible isn't telling us the pain just goes away. It's telling us that our joy overrides our current circumstances. Our joy overrides our sorrows. Well, how does that happen for us if we're Christians? Just like a mom will gaze at her baby, we must turn and stay connected to Jesus and gaze at Him in the midst of our deepest sorrows. I love the way this story goes in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is in the early church, and he's called into leadership in Acts chapter 6. And then in Acts chapter 7, if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it. He just lays out the full biblical story to these Jewish religious leaders that are anti-Jesus. And he does it such a beautiful and powerful and in a way that is unbelievable. And he just lays it out for them, just boom, 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 boom in chapter 7. Well, they don't like that. And so they kill him. He's the first martyr after Jesus in the church. Look at this last part of Acts chapter 7 with me, starting in verse 54. It's now when they heard these things, the the Jewish religious leaders, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, did what? He gazed into heaven. And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I have seen the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. They killed him. And the witness laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul in the Bible. Verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. It's very reminiscent of what Jesus does on the cross. He says, Lord, do not... Hold them to their sin. They do not know what they are doing. How does Stephen do that? In the midst of your sorrow and in the midst of your pain, I think it's interesting that Jesus uses an example of one human causing another human pain. The baby is causing pain for the mother. That is true. And in our lives, even if it's a Christian or something that's a non-Christian, the deepest pain comes from the ones we love, typically. So the same thing is true as Stephen is in this situation and he is in the worst circumstance you can imagine. He is getting killed by people that should love him and what does he do? How does he get past it? How does he forgive in the moment? Sets his gaze on Jesus. That's it. When you're dealing with some type of sorrow, when you're dealing with some type of circumstance that is hard for you, that doesn't make sense, instead of trying to fix it and trying to pull up your bootstrap and just will yourself to forgive this person or that person, instead Turn your eyes to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and it will overshadow that pain and that hurt. It make, won't make it go away, but it will overshadow it, and you will have joy and be able to forgive people like Stephen forgave them. We all need to learn that in our life, because we're going to be hurt by people all the time. That's true. Many of us gaze at things other than Jesus to help us in our sorrow and our pain, don't we? We gaze at these false savers we think will medicate our pain. Some of us gaze at our phone or our computer screens. We scroll through social media just because we've had a bad day and at least I know this is gonna make me feel better for a second and we'll scroll there and we'll gaze at that screen instead of gazing at Jesus. Some of us will gaze at pornography instead of gazing at Jesus as an early fix, as something that will just take care of the pain. It will numb it a little bit and if you begin to be in a habit of that, it's not about sex and pornography. It's never about that. It's always about something deeper. You're looking for connection. You're to be connected with somebody else you need to start to examine where your gaze is some of us will gaze at shopping if we can buy this thing we'll feel a little bit better about some of us will gaze at substance abuse whether it's alcohol or drugs if we can do these things then the pain just kind of goes away i don't have to deal with it and again these things may temporarily numb our pain but they aren't ultimate solutions We have to gaze at Jesus. That's the answer. We have to turn and look at him. We have to be around people that love him. We have to be in the Bible. We have to sit with him. We have to sing to him. That is the way we gaze and we turn our attention from those other things and look directly at him. And as you do that, your sorrow will be overshadowed by his joy. Three indicators of gospel joy. One, it's inevitable. It will happen. Two, it's overshadowing your current circumstances, and sorrow. And at number three, it's transcendent. Verse 22, this is Jesus again. So, also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. What an unbelievable promise that Jesus makes to his followers, he makes to us. And if you're not a Christian Christian, in the room, or you guys hang out with people that don't know Jesus, which I assume that's the case, I hope that's the case, joy and sorrow don't make any sense colliding, does not make sense for a non-Christian, because to get rid of your sorrow, you have to have joy, that is the way you have joy, is to get rid of your sorrow, but for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, it actually overlaps, that we can engage in sorrow in the midst of having joy. Because again, if you're not a Christian in the room and you're trying to get rid of your sorrow, there's kind of three main ways you can do it. You can numb the pain like we just talked about, whether it's drugs, alcohol, all the things we listed. You can numb the pain and go, I just don't want to feel that way. So I'm going to turn, I'm going to to do these things. That's one way. You can try and avoid the pain so that anytime something bad happens or you have a conversation with that person and you're like, man, I don't want to talk to that person. So you just avoid them. You can kind of take your ball and go home and you can kind of try to avoid the pain that's one way to deal with it if you're not a Christian. Or you can deny the pain. Whether you're a Christian or not, Christian, I feel like I see Christians do this all the time because they don't feel like they have space to lament or have pain in their life. And so it's like, man, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm just trusting, like I'm good. Like, are you really good? Like it's okay to not be good. It's okay to say, I'm kind of a mess right now. I need Jesus more than ever. Because if you try to deny it, what you're doing is just shutting off your brain and you're not really dealing with the circumstances. The Bible doesn't allow you to do that, it doesn't allow you to shut off your brain and divorce yourself from your reality. The follower of Jesus understands that the pain and heartache are results of the fall of Genesis chapter 3. We know pain is going to come. We know brokenness is going to come. And so we don't have to deny it. We don't have to avoid it. We don't have to numb it. We can move into it, and we can actually have joy as it overshadows our circumstances. It's transcendent in its nature. I love how Gordon Smith says it in his book, Called to be Saints, he says it this way. He says, but sorrow does not define us, talking about the Christian It is not the central emotional space which we live. What defines the church and the Christian intellectually and therefore emotionally is a deep awareness that all will be well. This means that we will get angry, we will feel fear, we will get discouraged, and we will mourn the deep losses of life. Yet sorrow is not our true home. We are designed to live in joy because of both the the creation and the redemption of the creation through the cross and the assurance of this redemption in the resurrection. Joy is now our default mode. Do you experience joy as your default mode as you follow Jesus? And not only do we have the most effective way to handle the realities of pain tapping into our joy in the person of Jesus, but we also have the most consistent way to handle the pain and sorrow, because the joy afforded to the Christian cannot be taken away. It can't be taken away. No matter the circumstances, no matter what that person says to you about that thing, you can't steal my joy. You can't do it, because it's not rooted in what you say or what you do. My joy is rooted in the face and the person of Jesus. That is where I find my joy. And Christian, that's where you find your joy cannot be taken away from you. Again, the world's joy is fleeting. If you're not a Christian, you're going to find joy in places that can get snatched and taken away from you at any minute, at any time. But the Christian does not have their joy taken away from them because their joy is found in a person. This person who will never leave you, will never forsake you. This person who always loves you. This person who has adopted you into his family, this person who has sealed that adoption by his spirit and giving you his spirit, this person who guarantees eternal life for you, this is where you find your joy, not in all those other things. If your joy is based on anything that the world offers, it can be taken away. But true joy of the gospel is transcendent. It can't be taken away from you. Three indicators of gospel joy. It's inevitable, it's overshadowing, and it's transcendent. Let's look at the back end of the text. And I think what Jesus gives us in these last couple of verses to help us navigate when we don't feel that way, Uh, we don't feel joyous as we follow him. Verse 25, chapter 16. This is Jesus again. He says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And in that day you will ask in my name... And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I have come from God. And I came from the Father and I come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Verse 29, his disciples said, ah, this is hilarious to me. Oh, now we get it. Yeah, okay, Jesus. They say, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you come from God. Jesus is like, yeah, right. Verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed has come, when all of you will be scattered, each to his own home, and leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. And I've said these things to you, that you may be, that you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart I have overcome the world. So maybe you are in this room this morning, and you're walking with Jesus, and you're going, man, I just, I'm not experiencing the joy you're talking about. Maybe it's because you have your gaze set somewhere else, or maybe you don't really know Jesus, you've just been acting like you know Jesus, or maybe for his disciples, which I love, if you're not experiencing joy, it might be one of these two things. And hear me say this, because I think this is an important distinction. Um, If you are in a place where you would be diagnosed with depression, kind of this state of emotional dislocation, you need to seek help. Come talk to me. Come talk to Jim. Come talk to somebody. We can get you in with a counselor. You might need some real help to get underneath what's going on. But if you're not experiencing joy because you're just searching for these other things, that's a different category. If you're not experiencing joy, it might be one of these two things that we see in these texts that I just read. Number one, you don't really know you're loved. You don't really know you're loved. Verse 27, look at what Jesus says again. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. Do you know that the Father loves you no matter what? No matter what you did last night. No matter what you did this morning. It's not based on your own behavior. It's based on what he's done on the cross and raising from the dead. And that the God of the universe, he loves you. Man, that would give you joy if you really believe it. But most of us don't really believe it if we're honest with ourselves. We kind of intellectually believe that God loves us. But at a heart level, we go, ah, he can't love me. I'm just, I'm a mess. Like, that's not true. He loves you in spite of you. You might not be experiencing joy because you don't really know that the Father actually loves you. That might be one reason. The second reason, which I just think is beautiful in this passage, (laughs) bless you, is that we might not know that we're really loved, and we might leave Jesus for our own self-preservation. This is what happens for the disciples. Look at verse 32 again. They're saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we get it, we get it, we get it. Jesus is like, ah, uh, I don't know if you do. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed has already come, when you will scatter each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. This is the beauty of the gospel. Everyone in this room, as we try to walk with Jesus, we're going to fail. We're going to fare miserably. We're going to fail continually. We're not going to try and fail But because of our own things, our own flesh, the the devil, the world system, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, it is a tidal wave against us, and we will stumble, and we will fall, and we will fail. But take hope. That's what Jesus is saying here. Listen, you guys are all going to scatter. It's not going to make me love you less. Take hope. And what he says, Christian, take hope this morning, that Jesus knows his closest followers are going to mess But he gives us peace anyway, even in the midst of us messing up. He has overcome the world. That should give us peace. That's what he says in verse 33. I've said these things to you, that you may have peace in a world that you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Aren't you thankful that he has done that for us? Let's remember that peace and let's remember that joy this morning. Let's pray. Father, thanks For your goodness to us in the midst of us, thanks that you pursue us. Thanks that this joy is inevitable as we enter into a real relationship with you. It is guaranteed that we will experience this joy when we see you face to face. Thanks, God, that your joy is overshadowing our circumstances. It's bigger than our current trials and tribulations. God, thanks that it's transcendent. It goes beyond a transactional action. It cannot be taken away from us. And thanks that you meet us, even in the midst of our failures and the idea of us not really knowing that we're loved. We need to remember that this morning, Jesus. I pray that it would be true, that your spirit would remind us of this truth, that you would seal it in our hearts, that joy would take root up in and through us, that would allow us to love you and love our neighbor well. We need it this morning. We ask it in your name. Amen.